we forget that a horse is not a car. It has a brain. A horse, when it looks at the jump, it is measuring the jump also. Some horses better than others, and some horses are easier in their rhythm to find a jump. But if we go along and we maintain consistency in pace, in balance, in the track, that means not going left and right en route to the jump, the horse actually measures the jumps in conjunction with us. So I always say, let him help you find the jump. And the anxiety level of the rider goes down when they're concentrating more on how their horse is reading the jump than they are on their lack thereof of being able to quote unquote see the distance. Welcome to Practical Horseman's new podcast featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show, which runs every other week, is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandy Olenek, and this week's episode is with Oregon-based hunter equitation trainer Shelly Camp. For full disclosure, Shelly was my trainer on the East Coast many years ago when I rode as an amateur. We are still friends, and I consider her to be one of my most influential riding mentors. I say that because when Shelly started teaching at the stable where I rode, I was at a really low point in my riding. I thought that I was not a good rider, largely because I was convinced that I could not see a distance to a fence, or at the very least not see it for an entire course of fences. To make matters worse, I felt like most everyone else around me could, and that they were just naturally better than me. As a result, I worked really, really hard to see distances and to get my horse to jump. Shelley helped me realize that, in fact, the opposite was true, that I had to do less, and that I was not responsible for making my horse jump, but instead I needed to allow him to jump. We did an article with Shelley a few years ago in Practical Horseman in which she describes her teaching philosophy and program of allowing a horse to jump. I thought it would be great to do the same here because her system really revolutionized how I rode. I started to win, which of course was great, but even more, what she taught me put the fun back into riding, and it gave me a huge amount of confidence, which has stayed with me. To fill you in on Shelley's background, she was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, where she rode with Claudia Kojakar, the mother of her Shelley's husband, Jeff Camp. Shelley graduated from the University of Calgary with a degree in applied mathematics, and she was going to go into engineering, but the connection with horses kept pulling her back. Eventually, she and Jeff opened a training facility, Oz Incorporated, just outside Portland, Oregon, where they both teach hunter, jumper, and equitation riders of all levels. They also both ride and compete, Shelley and the hunters, and Jeff and the jumpers, and Shelley has also served on the USHJA Board of Directors for several years, and she has been chair of the USHJA Trainer Certification Program for several years. 
So now let's get right into our conversation with Shelly, who begins by talking about the difference between allowing your horse to jump versus making your horse jump. Too often I feel like we see riders thinking about what they have to do to make this happen, how they can make their horse jump the jump. And trainers often are saying, come on, work at it, make him do it. And it isn't really that they're trying to have the horse be made to jump. Horses jump because something is stationary in front of them and they're galloping up to it. And once they've sort of come to terms with the concept of jumping, if they canter up to something, they jump over it. I can have horses loose in my arena and and they're running around and we're trying to catch them and they think, hmm, I don't want to be caught, so I'm just going to jump all these jumps. And so they don't jump because the rider signals them in a way to jump. They jump because there is a stationary object in front of them. With that in mind, we have to be passengers to some extent and guide them where the, the course is, the track, the rhythm, the pace, to make the, the technicalities of the course work out. So there's definitely an art and a skill set involved in doing that. But as you're doing it, you have to remember that the actual jumping mechanism is handled by the horse and not by the rider. And how does, you know, this concept of being a passenger, um, how does that help the horse jump better? Well, for me, I feel like when you're cantering up to a jump and you're giving too much instruction immediately in front of the jump, the horse is trained virtually to listen to you. We teach them about leg aids, we teach them about rein aids, we teach them about our voice commands. And so it's a lot of noise in front of the jump for them listening to you instead of concentrating on the jump. You know, you really see it in a spooky horse. With a spooky horse, sometimes we want to have more conversation right in front of the jump because it distracts them a little bit to be thinking about what the rider is asking them instead of being worried about the jump being too spooky. And so that's sort of the opposite idea, but that's a very specific situation with a spooky horse. With a horse that is not spooky, if we're having too much dialogue with them right in front of the jump, they're thinking more about what we're asking them than they are about jumping the jump. Now I want to stress that that's not to say that I think you want to override a spooky horse in front of the jump. So how does, you know, being a passenger and, and get allowing your horse to jump the jump, um, how does that help with the pressure of seeing a distance? I mean, with, uh, you know, I was an amateur and there is a lot, you put a lot of pressure, at least I did put a lot of pressure on myself to see a distance. How does, how does this, how does your system um, take the pressure off seeing a distance? I think it's um, sort of a crime in the hunter jumper world that we use the phrase, she sees the jumps well, she has a good eye, she doesn't have a good eye. Oh, he's so talented, he sees the jumps. When in fact, you can take a very hardworking rider that has believed their whole life that they're not good at seeing the jumps, and with a few quick fixes, change that their reality. We forget that a horse is not a car, it has a brain. A horse, when it looks at the jump, it is measuring the jump also. Some horses better than others, and some horses are easier in their rhythm to find a jump. But if we go along and we maintain consistency in pace, in balance, in the track, that means not going left and right en route to the jump, 
the horse actually measures the jumps in conjunction with us. So I always say, let him help you find the jump. And the anxiety level of the rider goes down when they're concentrating more on how their horse is reading the jump than they are on their lack thereof of being able to quote unquote see the distance. So now I've got them busied with the jobs of keeping the horse on the track and seeing if you can get the horse to look at the jump and study the jump. And then all of a sudden he's a participant with you and he is measuring the jump at the same time you are and then it becomes clear. And you know you touched upon this, um, why is being a passenger hard? I think that that's a mental state about I am the athlete, I am supposed to make this happen and it's it's much more um, simple to kick and pull and kick and pull. I had a, a trainer one time when I was a professional helping me with a horse and I was pretty pleased with how the horse went and she said to me, I said that was good don't you think and she said to me well, yes, I mean, anybody that has a lot of leg on and a lot of rain at the same time can find any distance, any time, anywhere, any day. And that's really stuck with me for years because I thought, she's right. And the reason that I did it that way that day is because I was so busy trying to impress her that I didn't want anything to go wrong. When in reality, it's so much easier to let the horses have their freedom and their liberty to to be a partnership with you it's not a military dictatorship it's a partnership and if they can have their partnership with you the anxiety level of the rider goes down when they are thinking about how the horse is responding to the situation and so I have some exercises that if you're really nervous and you're at a national championships or something that happens to me where I think okay I've got to be really good today and then I think oh dear don't do that don't say that don't be that so I start concentrating on for me it's so it's laughable I say to myself in my head heels down thumbs up hands in the shape of the wither put your horse in front of the leg open the courtesy circle and then pretty soon I just find that I'm en route to the first jump just by following that and I'm not concentrating on not making a mistake I'm concentrating on what to do and not what not to do and then all of a sudden it just happens and I've done it so many times or my clients or amateurs have been trained so many lessons so many jumps that if I can distract them from the performance anxiety of doing it wrong and can get them concentrating on what they should do instead of what they shouldn't do and they, it usually resolves itself. It takes a little bit of doing in lessons to teach them to overcome that fear of failure and that fear of being embarrassed or that fear of quote unquote missing a distance. Then once they're over that fear, then the world opens up. You can really see a brave new world. It's all of a sudden that there's no perfect distance. If you watch the Olympic riders from the US team, they, they find an array of distances, sometimes very, very long, sometimes very, very short, and none of them would ever think or dream of saying that they were missing a distance. They think, well, at that jump, that's a long three, so I want to come into that jump at a certain speed to make that line work out, or similarly, that's a short five, I have to fit five strides in there. They'll change their canter 
and make the choices so that the canter matches the exercise. That's a phrase I use a lot. Match the, match the stride to the exercise at hand. And all of a sudden you find that if you have a good canter and good balance, the horses should stretch if you're a little bit long from the gap and they shouldn't act like that's a mistake and they should back up and and pull away from the deep distance and not think that's a mistake and so instead of this extremely small sweet spot of a perfect distance we now have probably a five or six foot error margin based on uh, distances that are, are likable distances by the horse. They can get deep and pull away from them and make a nice wrap around the jump or they can be too long and stretch to it and if the rider doesn't interfere the horse is thinking about what he needs to do to get himself off the ground in a balanced way and all of a sudden a bad distance becomes a, first, a good distance. I remember for me one time I came out of the ring at Harrisburg and I said to the person on the ground with me, I said, that's too bad I missed the first jump. And then they said 87. And I just about fell off my horse. I'm like, what do you mean 87? I missed the first jump. And they're like, I didn't see that. And it's because I was disappointed with the choice I made to the first jump. And as I was going to it, I said to myself, you better make this work out. Like you better, I was getting too deep. You better make this work out and just concentrated on letting him do his part and jump it as well as he could. And a lot of people said to me that the first jump was the best jump on course, which is the irony of it all. So we have to get out of thinking in our heads exactly what we think is going to be a workable distance and remember that the horse is the one jumping and we have to allow him to enjoy the array of workable distances. And when, um, you know, thinking back to when we were working together, I remember being in the indoor riding ring on uh, my hunter, Boris, and um, you just started over, you started really basic. Uh, we started over cross rail. Um, and I, I, looking back, I always think of it as, you know, I, I was learning to do nothing. But as you've said, it's really hard for people to, to do nothing. So, um, you know, you talked about getting in the zone and um, uh, really just getting in my two point and or my half seat. And uh, when I got within, I would say maybe three or four strides, just moving my hands up the neck. So talk about that a little bit. So that's always been a favorite phrase of mine in the zone. What does that mean? That means when you're in the zone of the jump, you know, the, it depends on the on the course and the track to it, but the last two or three strides in the zone of the jump, let the horse do the jumping. So learning to abandon overriding in front of the jumps is really, really hard. And my best advice on that is to make it be as simple as possible. So you say we used an X cross rail. So I sometimes like to have a figure eight, like a, a say of a full arena, one on the left lead, one on the right lead, so you can continue and go left lead, right lead, left lead, right lead, or you could do it around in a circle, left lead, left lead, and then turn around and do it the other way. But what I like about that is, is that the jump is so low and is of no consequence. So allow yourself to let it be wrong. Allow yourself to let him trip over it if he's gonna trip over it. And your responsibility is to be in the jumping position. And I remember vividly with you, Sandy, I remember saying, you're going to take track of, uh, uh, keep track of the pace, you're going to keep track of the route, 
And then when you're in the zone of the jump, you're going to keep track of your position and your position only. And what he does is what he does. And with her horse, Boris, it was very cute because at the beginning, he was startled and shocked by the abandonment of the ride. And he ran off at the jump. And I would say to her, that's fine. Encourage, because he was waiting for her to hold him and then have her leg on to make sure he jumped. So I would say, that's okay. Get him back. Good, you've got him back. Now loosen the reins and do it at the next jump. And pretty soon, Boris went from a horse that was too excited all the time to almost lazy. Do you mm -hmm. recall that? Yes. Yes, it was um, fascinating. And this is, you know, we were going to talk about this, uh, the corners with him. Um, we, you, you made me realize that he would, you know, if we landed from a jump, he would take off and he would squeal and kind of really act up you know, as we landed from the jump and then we get to, you know, almost the apex of the turn and he would just slow down. Mm -hmm. And, um, but with the whole system that, that evened out because the jump wasn't so exciting. So he settled down and then, uh, then I had to actually be cognizant to start to, to build up, you know, going, approaching the jump and then get, when I got in the zone, get into my half seat and, and release my hands forward. So you raise a great point there. So what happens is when they start r running off, they're just surprised that, that, you know, we've given them the car keys for the first time and they're driving down the freeway and all of a sudden they think, I don't really want to be going this fast with no help. So with her horse, he started to slow down and was looking at the jump because she wasn't helping so much and then he didn't have anxiety from the override at the jump so he started to slow down and this doesn't happen in one exercise or one day so i encourage you all to do it over a period of time over poles on the ground just continue to try to teach yourself and your horse to enjoy less involvement rather than more involvement and with her horse once he really got the idea that she wasn't going to override, then all of a sudden our problem was she needed more leg, which is the <laughs> laughable part. Because the laughable part is she was so convinced that she needed no leg to ride her horse that he would run off if she used her leg. So she was convinced that she needed none. And when she would get to a real size jump, it's in order to put your heels down and be with the motion with the jump, your leg is around your horse. So if your horse is not accepting of your leg, of course they're going to run off. So in time, what happens is, is then you're using your leg five, six, seven strides out, out of the corner, wherever the, the, wherever the time is where he's allowing you to put your leg on, and then in the zone of the jump, getting in your jumping position and allowing him to be part of the conversation about what happens to the jump. Now that's not to say that I never ride up or I never slow down, but an, I've made an error if I'm doing it in the last three strides of the jump because I'm taking away from my horse's ability to concentrate on jumping. So again, using the phrase in the zone of the jump, allow my horse to jump. When I'm do all my riding that I feel like I need to do elsewhere. And remember that riding, if your horse doesn't accept your leg at all, you're not doing yourself a favor thinking you're just going to keep your leg off because it's an impossibility with the mechanics of the way they jump. Great. And one thing you mentioned, I mean, we started at um, a small cross railer. I said that, but actually we probably started on the flat work before. And um, I guess 
maybe um, talk a little bit about why it's helpful to start on the flat, that you don't even have to start over jump practicing your jumping position. So I make that happen almost every day. Every day when I'm teaching lessons, we have a flat portion of the lesson before we jump. And usually my flat work is tied into the exercises I've planned for jumping. But if we just take sort of a flat lesson day and we talk about how we work on this, I will um, put two poles on the ground on a 12 foot stride with three feet because it's a pole and not a jump for the landing of the first pole and three feet for the takeoff. So if I want to do five strides, that would be 66 feet. Five times 12 is 60 plus the three feet on the landing of the first pole and the three feet on the takeoff of the second pole. Now that should ride like a normal five stride line in a horse show. And so some people are surprised on the flat that they think that that feels too long. And that's because we traditionally seem to practice going slow and pulling on the mouth when we do flat work instead of having our horse in the stride that we want to jump. Which raises a great point that when we're trying to jump, we need to be on a gallop, we need to be in the half seat. So when we're doing flat work, we're supposed to be training our horse on the flat so he jumps well. So we should be practicing on the same stride. So I almost always on flat lessons have two poles on the ground set on a 12 foot stride. It doesn't matter if it's four strides, five strides, six strides, seven strides. The more strides in between, the easier it is, the less, the harder it is. Because what I do is I'll ask the people to canter over the poles and not care. And a horse won't jump a pole sometimes. They'll straddle them. They make more jumping errors at a pole because they don't actually have to jump. And so they will put one foot on one side and one foot on the other. And I don't really mind that it doesn't matter. It's just part of the exercise. If they're doing five strides and the riders get up to speed with five strides, they typically have to put a little bit of leg on and they're a little surprised that they have to go that fast, which is the speed that they have to go to go around a course. But then I make them alternate five strides, six strides, six strides, five strides. And I don't do it every time and I don't do it, you know, for 45 minutes, but I add that in while we're doing serpentines and flat work and so on. I add that in and then the horses are always sort of paying attention to what's going on with the poles on the ground and they're studying them. Then the riders are learning to match the stride to the exercise. If your horse is wanting to run off, I will do canter the first pole and trot the second pole. If it's really green or the rider is really green, I will get them to do in the zone of the jump at the trot, holding the two point exercise with their hand up the neck, like a main release almost. So at the lowest level, teaching riders to hold the mane and be in the two-point exercise and completely independent of their horse's mouth over the poles on the ground is the best way to start riders. It's the best way to start horses and it's the best way to start riders. When I ride green horses, like first time jumping, I hold the mane every time. People laugh at me. They're like, what do you mean you're holding the mane? Why are you holding the mane? Because I, it's so unexpected what they might do that I want above all them to not be afraid of me hitting them in the mouth. And so if I hold the mane and, they, and they're three years old or four years old and they've never jumped before and they throw themselves in the air from nine feet away, I don't want to be surprised and hit them in the mouth. And if you take that concept and you bring it 
out all the way through riding in international hunter derbies or grand prix horses jump the best when they're not afraid of their mouths so riders need to learn to stay out of their way and in the zone of the jump you might as well start it right from the beginning and not be caught up in the idea that your horse can't go like that they all can you just have to work at it so um backing up a little um the terminology, just to make sure, you know, we're on the same page with the terminology. Can you just talk about the uh, the jumping position and your definition of the jumping position? So there are lots of ways people say the same thing, and that's a bit confusing. The USHGA Trainer Certification Program came out with a manual that was trying to um, make the curriculum such that people use the same words. Some people will use the word two-point, get in the two-point and jump the course. Some people will say, you know, get in the half seat. Some people say in the galloping seat. So I follow what goes with the trainer certification program manual and we define those as a full seat which is sitting in the saddle with a direct line from the shoulder to the hip to the heel. The full seat would be at the walk, sitting trot, and canter. The light seat is just the same position where the seat bones slightly come out off the saddle and your crotch is low to the front of the saddle and that's a pretty secure seat. So if I'm riding up to a Liverpool or something that's spooky, I want to have my base of support close to the saddle. Beginner riders or riders over small jumps, we typically see them in the light seat. The light seat being close to the saddle with the buttocks out of the saddle. And then the galloping seat or what I call the half seat is where we're up out of the saddle and the natural movement of the horse pushes us out of the saddle and we're with the motion. So where does two point fit in? Well two point was a, a phrase that was developed years ago that was to say there are two points of contact meaning your legs, one on one side and one on the other. Those are the two points of contact with the saddle. So I view the two point as an exercise for developing the seats. The two point is the same as the up position of the rising trot. So for exercises that are really useful, I do them myself. If I'm feeling like I went on vacation and ate too much and need to get whipped into shape, I work a horse and I stay in the two point and ro rotate between the two point and the rising trot and the two point and hold it hold the up position of the rising trot if you find that when you're rising trot it, it is such that when you go to the two point you have to actually adjust your position to the two point then your two point is not working correctly or your rising trot is not correctly done so you have to think about posting trot up position hold stay in the two point be able to fall back into the rising trot and effortlessly go between the two. Pretty soon you'll find your weight just drops naturally into your heel. If you can't do that, you might be behind the motion, you might be ahead of the motion, but if you tire yourself long enough doing it, you will find that your heels will find the balance of that horse, your weight falls into your heel, and pretty soon you can effortlessly go between the two. So I use the two-point as an exercise to develop the light seat and the jumping seat. 
people can start this, I, I guess I wanted to emphasize because this was the part that shocked me when we were working together, first working together, um, you can break it down into the simplest form. I mean, I think we practiced this at the walk and just got really comfortable doing it at the walk, um, you know, rising into the into the half seat two point, using the two point exercise um, and then moved on to the trot and then the canter and then we went to the jumps. Um, the other thing I think uh, was interesting is, you know, at the walk and the canter, um, you had talked about sort of the feeling the oscillating gesture and balancing gesture of the horse. So I, I think that's an important point. So if you could maybe just talk a little bit about that. So when we're working on the two point exercise, the trot is actually the simplest exercise because it's a two beat movement and the horse doesn't move its head and neck. If you watch a horse trotting along, its carriage is very, very stable at the trot. If you watch a horse walk and really pay attention to its walk, easier to see at the walk than the canter, you'll notice some horses more so than others, their heads will go forward and backwards and forward and backwards with each step. Um, young horses do it really well because that's the way nature wants them to walk. Jaded older horses that have been pulled together do it less because they protect themselves and get stiff in their neck protecting themselves from the rider's hands. So the easiest way to see it is to watch a horse loose in the, in the paddock or to watch a young horse with tack on walking along and you see their neck go forward and back. And that's referred to as the oscillating gesture of the head and neck. So if their head and their neck go forward and back and forward and back, naturally, if we want them to move well and to be in their balance, our hands have to follow the oscillating gesture of the head and neck. So I recall working with Sandy and she's ready to have her lesson and she's trotting around and I wanted to say, we need to walk because we need to get your hands under control at the walk. And what that meant is she had to completely give up her contact, not her reins, but her contact, and see how much her arms would move back and forth, up and down the neck, if she was truly allowing her horse to walk in his natural form. And so we hear the words feel. He has a good feel. She has a good feel. Sandy believed, you believed you didn't have a good feel. And then you almost instantaneously found your feel when you recognized where the horse wanted his head to naturally go. He needed that as part of his locomotion per se, as part of the natural movement of a horse. And so I would begin all lessons with making sure I could get my horse to properly use his neck and not be guarded. I do it when I ride myself so that he's not guarded about wondering what my hands are gonna do and then we go from there. So you can begin up-down lessons at the lowest level starting to recognize the oscillating gesture of the head and neck and those riders will excel much faster because they have already had an awareness of being independent of their hands. Great. And then um, speaking, you know, you were talking about the simple exercise that you had, the, the two poles. Um, I think we started over a single, almost a pile, you know, three mm -hmm. poles. Um, so it is, it is, um, and we did it quite a bit. I, I feel like uh, we spent a big chunk of the winter, you know, three months, not necessarily at the poles, but I mean, we spent a lot of time just at that very basic level. 
So I recall that vividly because one of the balances as a, as a teacher is to keep your rider engaged with you. And if you make them go around relentlessly doing a pole on the ground, they're like, I hate my lessons. I don't want to go. So in order to teach them that, you have to mix it up a little bit. So Sandy said three poles. Part of the reason I use three poles, so I put two poles side by side with one pole on top, is because it's a little bit more rewarding for a rider when the horse is not straddling the poles all the time. So three poles, you can sometimes just get them to step over the three poles like a jump, whereas one pole, they're more likely to straddle it. If they straddle it with three poles, they sometimes knock it. And then when they knock it and you reset it, then they're really inclined to look and concentrate on the pole. And those are some of the first times you ever really get the rider to get that feeling about the horse being involved. I'm glad you reminded me about the three poles because mm -hmm. I do do that. And then the horse will hit it and then they're surprised because it rolls so easily, much easier than falling off of a jump cup. And then, they're, then they start concentrating on the poles and then pretty soon the rider can really feel that that horse is not wanting to kick that pole and then they concentrate on, on the jump themselves, which makes it easier for the rider to find the distance. So after that, if, the, if you're losing your rider, then you kind of abort mission and go back to, okay, let's just jump a little pattern because that's what they want to do. And then you start to blend the, the patterns of what they're nor normally working at with this new concept of staying in the zone of the jump, staying out of the way of the horse, from the poles and pretty much it's very rewarding as a as a trainer you start to see them use those pieces from the flat they don't even know they're doing it but you start to see it and then you just stay at it and you have to allow them to do the things that they've been wanting to do like jump all the jumps especially with kids all they want to do is jump so you allow them to jump the jumps and you kind of move away from this concept of the that you've been doing on the flat if you do it too much right away at the jumps, they don't get there and they're too frustrated. So you move away from it and you continue on the flat and mix it up and then in time, the two sides, the flat work and the jumping all come together and they're now finding themselves in the zone of the jump, not interfering with the horse's balance and then you're really getting somewhere. Right, and I think um, when I, you know, when I was doing this, it was, I would say it was revolutionary. I mean, it as you said, we kind of went back and forth, but even doing the simple poles on the ground or a little X, uh, when you start feeling it, and, and you had even said to me, okay, so this is something different. You haven't ever done this before. Just have faith in it. Just It's going to take a little while, but just have faith and stay with me. And I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. Um, so, you know, definitely, um, I, I just wanted to emphasize that it does take time. Not everybody's as academic as you though. So when you're teaching you, it's quite simple because I teach you, you're a very talented rider and you just are confused about why you can't make this happen for you. And then I get you thinking about that and then you change your ways and you're quite academic about it and all of a sudden you see the light. Not everybody's as simple as that. Harder with kids, easier with adults. I find that when you train kids, they mostly just want to jump and they they filter out a lot of instruction. With adults, they've they've had their successes and then they want to be able to repeat their successes and they can't quite repeat them all the time and then they want to know how it is that they can be more consistent. They watch the professionals and they're like, look how consistent they are. They're just so much better than me. And that's not really the case. It's just that 
it's it's getting through that what goes on in our heads so with you it was simple because once you once you felt what I was talking about and you were open-minded about it it came very quickly to you so I can't stress enough with people that are a little more stubborn and not as academic as Sandy that you have to kind of go go their way a little bit and bring it back and try to make it fun not like you did it you didn't do it you did it you didn't do it it's like hey now we're gonna jump and they think about it completely different and not keep working at it you could still use some of the vernacular like in the zone of the jump remember we don't want to interfere and you can throw that in there but you don't want to go at it as hard as you did at the flat and with the little cross rails because you don't want to bore them and, and or tire them of the exercise. You want them to a kind of arrive at it on their own, which was what happened with you. You were very respectful about following the process, but once you recognized it live for mm -hmm. yourself, all of a sudden it was like, I can't believe this. This is so simple. Mm -hmm. And that and then, then it's really easy to teach you to to remind you after that but in the in the learning part of it some people will give up about changing their ways because their old way kind of worked for them it worked for them to be kind of a better than average rider or an average rider but you can't be a great rider unless you're going to get out of the way of your horse great and I guess to that um, talking, we t touched a little bit on corners. Um, one thing you used to say to me too, within the context of this, uh, you know, when we sort of moved from the, the cross rails and single fences to um, lines and, and courses uh, was the accordion, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of pulling your horse in and then letting him go out. So if you could talk about that a little bit. So I have this analogy that I use with your horses like an accordion. The funny part is, is that accordions are almost becoming extinct, so I better come up with a new analogy pretty soon. So if you're cantering to the jumps, you're letting your stride out. When you come to the end of the ring, you've got to regroup enough to bring your horse back into balance. So I'm thinking a little bit along more the hunter and equitation lines at the moment. So if you canter down a five stride line and you land in the end of the ring and your horse goes around the ring and then you go to the next jump and then he goes down that line and then he goes around the corner, the illusion that we're never changing the stride is that an illusion. It's nothing more than an illusion. If we do it well, we canter down the line and then in the end of the ring we pull the stride together much like an accordion. So if you think of somebody playing the accordion in order to make more music, they have to pull their stride back together, or excuse me, pull their instrument back together in order to let it out so that it makes the music. So when we're going around the end of the ring, even if our horse isn't pulling or isn't running off, I still say we close the leg and we half halt a little or we take a little feel of the reins and pull the stride together enough so that we're able to ride forward out of the corner and ride towards the jump. You know over the years my vernacular changes a little bit and it kind of comes back and it goes and it comes and I but we still are teaching the same thing just sometimes different words work for different people in different settings. So if I have a horse that has a short a rider with a horse with a short stride they're always thinking they have to go so fast to make it down the lines because their horse doesn't have a long stride. When in reality, the opposite is true because if the horse is off balance in the corner, which is what we used to talk about with Boris, he used to squeal and buck 
and I believe he squealed and bucked because he was off balance. And he it manifested in a way that seemed like he was being naughty, but he was actually filled with anxiety about the corners because he was off balance. So when we were able to pull the stride together, if you watch a horse gallop in the paddock, they if they canter too fast around the corner and it's slippery, they fall down. So they don't canter that fast around the corner because they don't want to fall down. They're, they're not stupid. They're not a car. They have a brain. So in the corners, if you think of it like a little accordion and you bring the stride together, then the horse is in balance. So then he, if he's got a short stride, he's more capable of galloping out of a balanced stride than he is out of an off-balance stride. If he has a gigantic stride, it's more he's more capable of making a good jump off of a balanced stride. So we want to connect him and collect him as much as we can in the end of the ring before we get in the zone of the jump and let him jump the jump. And one thing I wanted to um, mention too is, you know, this exercise is for well, maybe you can explain it, but it is for horses. I don't want to discourage people it, because there are times you need to have your trainer help. And we're talking about Boris. He had a little bit of a, a stop to him. Mm-hmm. So, and I didn't realize you were doing this at the time, but um, if I wasn't able to come out and ride, you would get on him and train him that it was okay, you know, to leave from any distance. So I definitely had your help and a lot of help. So I, I guess just wanted to speak um, to people who, you know, whose horses maybe this isn't appropriate for, or if they're having a really hard time, they might need to get help. I mean, we all want to be able to do it on our own, but. Uh, so I help people um, that are in full training with me, but I also help people that at horse shows that I just meet them there. And then I help people that ship in for lessons to our farm. And those are usually the people you were just talking about. They think they've tried everything and then they can't make this work out. And in some cases, um, you know, seeking somebody who's experienced in a good professional is a good idea and making sure that you kind of figure out who you want to get help from and that they their horses go the way you envision that so you could watch them at horse shows or come and watch them teach lessons or watch them ride and be sure that what you see is what you're looking for because because you don't want to just say well that person's a trainer so i'm going to take my horse there and get them to help me with it and then think that your horse needs something different than what your ideal is. So in the case of Sandy's horse, he was so used to being in conflict right in front of the jump that this abandoned idea for him was difficult at the beginning. He didn't he wanted me to make him go over the jumps and I wanted to tell him that he was just supposed to want to go over them. And so in between when you would come and ride, I would ride him and I would not, I don't believe in jumping horses too much, so it didn't need to really be a lot of jumps, but I would, or a lot of anything. I would do it to poles on the ground. I would canter up to them and give him no advice. And then he started problem solving for himself. And that's when we were really getting somewhere, when he was problem solving for himself, because he's the one jumping. And if he, you were convinced that he was going to stop and pretty soon he was so brave you were shocked by it because he just thought he was the one that had to get over the jump. And um, I think kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, we talked about um, how you can sort of advance from from sort of the doing nothing, you know, or getting in your half seat and, and 
moving your hands forward um, to being able to positively influence your horse and, and making minor adjustments. That's a great comment because the only way we can get to that stage, which frankly is what everybody wants and everybody that rides at a very high level does, they influence their horses in a positive way. But I cannot stress enough that you have to work first on being able to be independent because we all think that we aren't doing too much or we're under, not overriding. When I say to somebody, well, you kicked him there, and they're like, no, I didn't. And I say, I know you think you didn't kick them, him there, but you did. You kicked him there. I can tell like his ears pricked up and his tail, you know, he was reactive. And, and so just that awareness of getting to the point where you're not overriding your horses, um, you'll see some of the the World Cup finals, some of the best results, and people are like, did you see that guy? He was just sitting there, and that horse, like, babysat him. And I always think that's amusing, because if you're riding in the World Cup finals, I'm thinking that horse didn't really babysit anybody. And mostly the most successful people are the people that can stay out of the way of the horses. Having said that, is once you're able to stay out of the way of the horses, uh, then what you do is you have guided discovery and you help them get to to the jump the way you want them to get to the jump in an influencing kind of way. So if I want to leave a stride out, I'm coming off the turn in a, in a forward type of ride and that signals my horse that that's what I'm doing. If I want to come off the turn and I want to be in a very collected stride for a short line, my horse is responding to that. But I still have to say, if you really watch the best riders, they are allowing the horses to jump. They set up all those scenarios and they set up those rides so that the horse has the most success of jumping the jump well. And if you watch the top, top, highest level of jumpers at a meter 60, there's just so few horses in the world that can even do that. And it's very educational to watch those guys because when you watch the good ones, there's lots of bad ones too, but when you watch the good ones, you'll see how much they just want their horse to concentrate on the jump and how much the horse does concentrate on the jump. And it comes off as, oh, that horse tried so hard there. Well, yes, he tried because he was trying for his rider. Maybe the oxer was so wide, uh, but if they're concentrating on, on the jump, they realize how wide it is and they try really hard. If they're concentrating on the noise of the rider, they knock the jump down because they had no idea it was that wide because they were thinking about what the rider was telling them. Again, I just um, was so excited to, to talk with you about this and thank you so much um, because I do, it again, it was, it was a, a defining moment in, in my riding. So. Thank you very much for asking me to do this. I really enjoyed it, and I hope everybody tries my little exercises. Thanks, Shelley. Thank you so much for listening to Practical Horseman's podcast. You can find Practical Horseman's article with Shelley that I referred to in the introduction, and its title is Get in the Zone for Better Jumping. This can be found on our website at www.practicalhorsemanmag.com. In the article, Shelley shares the progression of getting in the zone on the flat and over poles, single fences, a line of jumps, and a course of fences. I would love your feedback about the podcast, so if you have time, please rate and review the show. And join us again in two weeks. 
Our upcoming conversations are with top hunter rider Liza Boyd, Canadian eventer Selena O'Hanlon, jumper rider Kevin Babington, and Olympian Jim Wofford. You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening.